You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW Talknet. Hi everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with Judicial Watch's weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us. We have had an extraordinarily busy week this uh, week in uh, terms of our efforts to uncover government corruption. Our lawyers were operating here in D.C. and in California uh, to try to uphold the rule of law, and uh, we are getting results in ways that Congress refuses to pursue, the media refuses to pursue, and even, frankly, the Justice Department and FBI refuse to pursue. Uh, Judicial Watch is in the forefront of the efforts to uncover uh, the deep state attack on President Trump that's unprecedented in American history, get accountability on uh, the Hillary Clinton email issue, hold Congress to account for its, ethicals, tra- its ethical transgressions or ethical transgressions of its members, and protect the rule of law and your right to vote in places like California. Just an extraordinarily busy week. Uh, but first, the good news. It was we won in California. What did we win? Well, Judicial Watch filed a lawsuit against the state of California on behalf of voters who are being harmed by that loony leftist effort in California to require presidential primary candidates to release their tax returns. I think the last five years of their tax returns in order to appear on the ballot, which is outside the law, outside the Constitution, and obviously an attack on President Trump. Uh, Our lawyers were in Sacramento, California, just yesterday, Thursday, arguing on behalf of the voters at a, uh, at a hearing uh, called by the judge. It was a hearing for a preliminary injunction. Of course, President Trump's lawyer was there as well. So you had the lawyers for the state on one side, uh, Judicial Watch's lawyer on the other, sitting next to uh, President Trump's lawyer, uh, lawyers for the uh, California Republican Party, Hamid Dillon, uh, who's another great lawyer and advocate for freedom, and I'm not sure who the fourth lawyer was, but he was there representing uh, additional plaintiffs who are trying to have their rights vindicated by stopping this law. And thankfully, the uh, judge, Judge Anglin in the case, uh, from the bench ruled uh, that, yes, we get the preliminary injunction. So President Trump won, Judicial Watch's clients won, and of course you won, the American people, by having California uh, being brushed back from their attempt uh, to put their thumbs on the scale for the 2020 elections. Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty serious affront to the rule of law. Look, I, 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 want, I want to quote a critic of the law, okay? I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'll at least try to disguise it in a way to make it fun and interesting, but I probably won't be able to. I'm put on my disguise here. First, it may not be constitutional. This is the law requiring uh, tax returns uh, be uh, made public. First, it may not be constitutional. Second, it sets a slippery slope precedented, precedent. Today, we're, we, we require tax returns, but what would be next? five years of health records, a certified birth certificate, high school report cards, and will these requirements vary depending on which political party is in power? A qualified candidate's ability to appear on the ballot is fundamental to our democratic system. For that reason, I hesitate to start down a road that well might lead to an ever-escalating set of differing state requirements for presidential candidates. Who said that? The former governor, then governor, of California, Jerry Brown, the Democrat. He vetoed it. 
They tried to pass this law once before it was vetoed. The Legislative Council at the time said it would be unconstitutional if enacted. So they had a new governor who didn't care for the, about the rule of law here or the Constitution, uh, didn't care about Jerry Brown's quite correct analysis, and um, as part of this, this crazed zeal to target President Trump, uh, they were willing to take steps to keep him off the ballot and deny millions of Californians the right to vote. And that was the essence of Judicial Watch's challenge. Our, our voters have, have a right to vote for candidates of their choice. And that vote can't be unfairly infringed by a uh, outlaw requirement that California has initiated uh, to, keep, uh, to keep specifically President Trump off the ballot. The, Cal the Constitution has a specific requirement or sets out the requirements for a presidential candidate. And I'm going I'm to read what those requirements are because I think I quoted it from memory last time and got it wrong. I'm not as smart as I look or don't look, depending on your point of view. U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 1, Clause 5, known as the Qualifications Clause. No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of the President. Neither shall any person be eligible, or shall be eligible for, to the office of the President. Let me start over. No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of the Constitution shall be eligible to the office of the President. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. That's the qualifications clause. Very limited. Essentially, you have to be a citizen, naturally born, and uh, a resident of the, of the United States for 14 years previous. And... Um, or at least 14 years total, and, and be 35. So it's a pretty broad qualification in the sense that millions of Americans can run. You can't have a state come in and say, you know what, we're going to add another qualification. What next if California got its way? Physical exams, IQ tests, DNA tests. physical fitness test, who knows? Obviously that can't be the case. And that's why I, the court was right to uh, knock out from the bench this ruling, this, this law, or at least preliminarily enjoin it, because what will happen is, unless he did that, it wouldn't. Uh, it would require, uh, because of the timing of the California primary next year, I think in November, uh, President Trump would would be eliminated from the ballot. But you had the largest state in the union try to keep the president of the United States off his party's presidential ballot, primary ballot. To say that is to condemn the law, isn't it? Now, uh, and of course. Our voters, our, our plaintiffs, the voters, 
their First Amendment rights would be harmed by having the, can the, the candidate of their choice, obviously the president, and any other candidate who didn't want to comply with this, be kept off the ballot. That's why the judge intervened and said no. You know, and I read California's oppositions, uh, you know, their opposition to our efforts here and the president's efforts. Of course, the president has a strong claim here. He would be, unless he uh, uh, vitiated his privacy rights and, and uh, put his constitutional rights uh, set aside, he wouldn't be on the ballot. The court noted that the Ethics and Government Act, and the president's lawyer made this point, which is a big federal law that really has little to do with ethics and all about hassling people who want to run for office and serve in public and serve in positions of influence in Washington, nevertheless requires candidates to file hundreds of pages of documents stating their finances and such. So they kind of set out federally uh, what uh, ethically is required in terms of financial disclosures for candidates for the presidency. Uh, you know, I would suggest that's problematic too constitutionally, but certainly the federal government's already covered this, and that means it's preempted for the states to come in and do it. So uh, whether you call it under preemption, with the constitutional phrase, or it's just outright unconstitutional, no matter how you slice it, this, uh, this law was lacking, and, and really an abuse of power. Because remember, taxpayers are footing the bill for this defense. You know, Judicial Watch does this work because we're a charity, educational foundation. Our work is, is devoted to stopping government corruption and abuse, exposing it, educating the American people about the Constitution, as I'm attempting to do here today. And obviously we do it through our litigation. But tax dollars are being wasted as well uh, because California tax dollars are being wasted to defend this indefensible law. And California, as I, I began to say, California was saying in its, in its papers uh, that, oh, but this isn't any harm. All, all, you know, all you need to do is comply with the law and there's no harm. Well, you talk about a circular argument. That, that, was, the, that was the legal position. You don't have to be a lawyer to know that's bunk. So uh, we don't know what the detail, you know, there'll be a, there'll be a legal, uh, uh, a written ruling, uh, presumably uh, the judge said by the end of the month on, uh, on the specifics as why he's, uh, he, why he is off uh, putting forward the preliminary injunction. So he issued the preliminary injunction orally from the bench, and he's going to follow up with a written ruling that details his reasoning. And then obviously the California, uh, the California state government uh, is going to appeal. I doubt they'll win, so there'll be further wastes of tax dollars for an indefensible law, and I doubt even the Supreme Court will, um, I, if it gets to the Supreme Court, my guess it will be summarily held or, or uh, summarily uh, handled. All, all of this craziness to get Trump. And you think the swamp is only here in Washington, D.C.? No, it's in Sacramento, California. And, uh, you know, uh, Republicans, they talk that, well, you know, they can't win California, so they don't spend a lot of time out there <clears throat> because uh, other than trying to raise money. 
Uh, Judicial Watch doesn't think California is a lost cause in terms of the rule of law and our Constitution and our Republican form of government and protecting our sovereignty in terms of immigration uh, and making sure our elections are free, fair, and clean. We don't just write off entire parts of the country because uh, we're not a political party. We don't have to allocate our resources that way. So Judicial Watch is as active in California, um, second only to our activity here in Washington, D.C., I would say. We have two lawsuits challenging sanctuary policies in California. We filed a lawsuit against Los Angeles County uh, and California, state of California, over its uh, election uh, voter rolls, their voter registration rolls, and that, that lawsuit led to a settlement that is leading to L.A. County removing 1.5 million people potentially off the rolls who should not be there because they're probably dead or moved away. So three major federal, uh, three major lawsuits in addition to this fourth one on um, uh, trying to overturn this unconstitutional requirement. And I don't think I talked about this on our update, but they've got this um, another law requiring uh, the um, essentially imposing a quota on corporate boards of directors to have women on the boards of directors. I mean, completely unconstitutional. And Judicial Watch is also challenging that. So we haven't forgotten you out there in California uh, because the rule of law is important to, as I say, the largest state of the union. And if the rule of law is not enforced out there, then, oh boy, the whole country is harmed. So uh, we're, we're extremely pleased by this, this, uh, this outcome. Uh, Judicial Watch was, and this, this just shows you how extraordinary a group Judicial Watch is. And uh, we had our lawyer in Sacramento arguing uh, against this law to try to keep the President of the United States off the presidential ballot in the year 2020. At the same time, we had lawyers here in Washington, D.C., Testif- uh, taking the testimony of a, cle- a key Clinton email witness. This is all happening on the same day. I'll tell you about the testimony next week. Uh, but uh, who else does that type, who's able to do that type of work on both, par- on, on, and on both coasts of the country? The Clinton email scandal, as I say, is back in court. Uh, our we were granted, those of you who don't, uh, who don't follow us, we were recently granted additional discovery, which means we can take evidence, get documentary evidence, documents, and take witness testimony under oath about the Clinton email issue because the court wants to know whether Hillary Clinton was trying to uh, evade the FOIA law by using her email system, whether uh, the State Department was trying to game the court by trying to shut the case down before uh, they had to give up the emails and tell anyone about it, and whether the, uh, the emails generally, um, whether they are other emails out there that can be found that should be searched as required under FOIA. Now, this is a case about Benghazi and under which all of this arises, over, uh, through which all of this arises. And so Benghazi's tied up in this too, and the court asked, well, were they worried about what was in those emails as it relates to Benghazi? Is that why they didn't want us to know about it? 
All of this is being subject to scrutiny uh, by Judicial Watch, and we've uncovered so much as a result of a prior court ruling granting us discovery, so much so that the court in granting us the additional discovery said, you know, there are a lot of additional questions here. And he wanted to know what the heck is going on here with the State Department and its cover-up and its activities that we uncovered. And the Justice Department, we found out the Obama White House was covering it up. And it's, it's now at the point where the judge is willing to consider whether to let us depose Hillary Clinton in court, under oath, in person. We've already asked her questions under oath written through written format, interrogatories. She's responded to them in writing under oath. But as you might imagine, you don't get much information. You don't get a chance to cross-examine or uh, probe further these answers. So Mrs. Clinton has, the court gave her 30 days to oppose our efforts to depose her. Those 30 days run on Monday. So if you're seeing this on Friday, it's on Monday. If you're seeing it on Monday, today, it's today. And then we have, I think, 10 days to respond to Mrs. Clinton. And also Cheryl Mills, her chief of staff at the State Department, who the evidence shows was deeply in involved in the email cover-up. So again, this is, this is just one group, Little Old Judicial Watch, doing all this heavy lifting that Congress refuses to do, the Justice Department refuses to do, the media refuses to do. And... Um, it wouldn't happen but for Judicial Watch. It's kind of scary, isn't it, folks? Really scary. And along those lines, um, you know, this is kind of a scandal that's staring everyone, that everyone knows about Washington, D.C., but no one wants to talk about uh, because uh, Alan Omar is a protected person uh, because of her politics and... Uh, she hides behind uh, her um, victimhood status to uh, prevent any questioning of her ethics. So if you raise questions about her ethics, she plays the race card and the religion card to distract from these reasonable questions about her ethics. Now, Judicial Watch uh, bravely filed an ethics complaint against Alana Omar. And I say bravely because I knew, and we know, when we file complaints like this, we're going to get attacked. We're going to get attacked for asking for a basic ethics investigation about publicly available information that raises questions about whether she married her brother and about whether she engaged as a result in immigration, tax fraud, student loan fraud, obviously marriage fraud, and who knows what else. Now, the House Ethics Committee is split half and half right down the middle, Republicans and Democrats. That's, that's normally not how committees are run in the House. The majority has the majority of seats, but the Ethics Committee is a uh, mutually assured destruction committee, meaning it's, each, each side can't do anything without the other going ballistic. So unless the Democrats want to pursue this, and my guess is the Republicans don't want to pursue this either, at least the Republican leadership, and it won't be pursued. So how does you change that? You change that by communicating with your, your House members. 
you let them know that you want this ethics complaint investigated. And, um, but this marriage, believe it or not, this marriage fraud issue, which by the way was given more evidentiary weight this week when Ilan Omar deleted a, tw a tweet that named her father as uh, another name other than what we're, is supposed to be her name. I don't have the name in front of me, but it's, it's, he said, she said something about my father and the last name is the same as the name of the brother. Further confirming that she may have married her brother. Incredible. But it doesn't end there because there were allegations made in the divorce filing that were, I think, first reported by the New York Post that Alan Omar maybe may have used in campaign funds improperly to take care of an alleged paramour. The allegations are that her alleged lover, Tim Minette, received nearly $230,000 from her campaign since July of 2018. And these allegations were essentially made by Minette's wife who filed for divorce. And I want to read you the complaint. Because these are one of this is one of these issues you won't hear about it anywhere else. Dear Chairman Skaggs, we filed it with the Office of Congressional Ethics, which is a body that supports the House Ethics Committee. Judicial Watch is a nonprofit, nonpartisan. Nonpartisan. You know what that means? doesn't mean we're not conservative. It means that we're not Republican or Democrat. We're not a party group. Nonpartisan educational foundation promoting transparency, accountability, and integrity in government and fidelity to the rule of law. We regularly monitor congressional ethics issues as part of our anti-corruption mission. This letter serves as a supplemental complaint to an official complaint that was filed with the Office of Government Ethics on July 22, 2019 relative to a potential to potential felonies committed by Representative Alana Marr involving tax fraud, marriage fraud, immigration fraud, and perjury, principally involving Representative Omar's possible marriage to her biological brother, presumably as part of an immigration fraud scheme. So that's the complaint I was talking about. In addition to those potential violations of law, new disclosures arising from civil litigation raised still more troubling allegations, suggesting more potential violations of law or regulations by Representative Omar that require investigation. Specifically, in a divorce action, Dr. Beth Minette of Washington, D.C. has accused her husband, political consultant Tim Minette, of having an affair with Representative Omar during which Mr. Minette's firm, E Street Consulting LLC, and Mr. Minette directly received nearly $230,000 from Representative Omar's campaign since July 2018. According to Dr. Minette's divorce filings, quote, on reflection, defendants' more recent travel, that's her husband's, and long work hours now appear to be more related to his affair with Representative Omar than, his actual, than with his actual work commitments. The bulk of the proceeds paid to E Street, $175,371.40, were funneled to E Street after the November 2018 congressional elections, thereby calling into question the true purpose of the payments. 
Additionally, according to a complaint filed with the Federal Election Committee, Alon for Congress, and this is another group, and um, forgive me, I forget the name of the group because they do good work, uh, they had filed quickly an ethics, uh, uh, an FEC complaint based on these allegations as well. A lot, uh, so according to that complaint, Alon for Congress campaign filings with the FEC indicate that eight disbursements were made to East Street Consulting totaling $21,546.94 for travel expenses. That's a lot of travel expenses. However, these expenses were not itemized as required by FEC regulations. You know, that, uses, that raises a red flag. You usually hide some significant scandals sometimes in uh, these seemingly podunk violations of the rules. House rules are quite specific about the improper use of campaign funds for personal expenditures. The Code of Official Conduct for the House of Representatives states, yes, they do have a code for official conduct in the House of Representatives. A member, delegate, or resident commissioner, A, shall keep the campaign, shall keep the campaign funds of such individuals separate from the personal funds of such individual. B, may not convert campaign funds to personal use in excess of an amount representing reimbursement for legitimate and verifiable campaign expenditures. And C, except as provided in Clause 1B of Rule uh, 24, may not expend funds from a campaign account of such individual that are not attributable, attributable to bona fide campaign or political purposes. The House rules of conduct are also quite explicit about the seriousness with which Congress takes such violations to have allegedly occurred with respect to Representative Omar's conduct. The very opening of Rule 23, the Code of Official Conduct states, there is, there is hereby established by and for the House the following Code of Conduct to be known as the Code of Conduct. One, a member, delegate, resident, commissioner, or employee of the House shall behave at all times in a manner that shall reflect credibly on the House. As suggested by Dr. Manette's court filings and the FEC complaint, these payments may represent campaign funds being used to allow Mr. Minette to accompany Representative Omar in her travels for Representative Omar's pleasure and thereby, and thereby constitute campaign funds being used for personal expenses in addition to expenses not being properly itemized, both serious violations of House rules campaign finance regulations. We call upon the House, the Office of Congressional Ethics to launch an investigation to Representative Omar's conduct immediately for both these potential violations and those enumerated in our earlier letter, July 22nd, 2019. Respondent Representative Omar has been provided with an exact copy of the file complaint, all its attachments. Thank you for your consideration. Signed me on behalf of Judicial Watch. What do you think? Do you think Congress needs to investigate that? Do you think we laid out a serious set of claims that deserve investigation, both on the campaign finance and the potential marriage to her brother? What do you think? Now, I'm not just asking you that because, for rhetorical purposes, because I want you to share your thoughts with your members of Congress. Call them at 202-225-3121. That's 202-225-3121. Or you can send them an email or a letter, even better. Because nothing will be done unless you pressure them. Now, maybe something will be done. But my past experience suggests nothing will be done 
unless there's severe voter pressure on the House uh, to hold Ms. Omar accountable for this alleged misconduct. Because the media isn't going to do it. As I said, she's protected. The establishment class is afraid to go after her because, as I said, she's protected. And the question is, is she going to be protected from the rule of law and uh, you know, basic ethics rules in the House? There's enough here between the marriage scandal and her campaign finance scandal, which, by the way, she denies everything. Without being specific, she denies everything. But there is enough evidence that if true, as the left likes to say, but this isn't, this isn't just a, uh, a jaywalking ticket. If true, these are, if these allegations are, are uh, pursued and confirmed, in my view, it would require her expulsion from the United States House of Representatives. Do you think that Alana Marr should be investigated to see whether she should be expelled or not? You've got to let your members of Congress know. Because I think these are pretty serious allegations. You know, there are lots of ethics allegations against members of Congress, both Republican and Democrat, and we don't jump in on everyone or initiate everyone, but these are pretty darn serious. And the House Ethics Committee, you know, is, is uh, something that the Republicans are afraid to uh, employ to hold their fellow members accountable, even if they're breaking the rules six ways Sunday. Uh, for instance, we have two ethics complaints against Representative Adam Schiff, who is now the corrupt head of the, intellig the Intelligence Committee for the Democrats. He improperly confirmed classified information. It looks like he was improp in, in improper contact with anti-Trump witnesses. So those were the bases for the two ethics complaints we filed. And, uh, you know, if there was a Republican who had done both those things or had been credibly alleged to have done both those things, by the way, that ethics complaint about the mishandling classified information, the Ethics Committee has been sitting on silently, I think, for two years now. Two years. Can you believe it? Well, I guess you can believe it. Congressman Schiff should not be head of the Intelligence Committee, at least until these issues are cleared up. And I think these issues will never be cleared up because if they are, quote, cleared up, they'll find him wanting ethically and he'll be removed. We also filed an ethics complaint against Maxine Waters for inciting violence against her political opponents. You remember she told uh, people to confront uh, members of President Trump's candidate uh, cabinet in gas stations and restaurants and such, really inciting violence, outrageous. Does that reflect credibly on the House of Representatives? You know, Judicial Watch, believe it or not, had worked with Nancy Pelosi in 2006 and seven to reform the House ethics process so that we could file complaints like this. So that there was this independent body, this office, office of Congressional Ethics that would vet these complaints in a more public and accountable way. And the problem for the Democrats is a lot of Democrats got caught up in that new process that 
Judicial Watch worked with Nancy Pelosi's office on. I told you we're nonpartisan. So what happened? Both parties shut it down. So if you think there ought to be no ethics enforcement in the House, don't do anything. If you think otherwise, you're going to have to take action as a constituent and a voter to let your members of Congress know. And Judicial Watch, I, we recognize the likelihood of success of, of these complaints. But someone's got to do something. Someone's got to say something. Should we just sit by silently as these members of Congress violate all the rules? Violate the law with impunity? No. Judicial Watch isn't going to shut down because the House Ethics Committee doesn't want to act. We're going to work to pressure them. And I hope you join us. Speaking of corruption, back to Spygate. Back to the worst corruption scandal in American history. Judicial Watch has uncovered more documents showing, the, uh, showing previously undisclosed contacts between the Clinton spy operation head, uh, Christopher Steele, and the State Department, the Obama State Department. They, uh, we have filed a lawsuit with the, excuse me, let me get some water, the Daily uh, Caller News Foundation uh, for these documents at the State Department. We were suing for essentially communications uh, with the Obama State Department and um, Christopher Steele, his company, uh, and uh, we basically wanted to know what was up because we knew there was a nexus. There had been some public reports showing a nexus between Christopher Steele, the Clinton uh, spy, and uh, the Obama State Department. In fact, Jonathan Weiner, who is a friend of Christopher Steele, uh, confessed in a Washington Post op-ed that, yes, he communicated with Steele about the dossier, helped write parts of it for him, and shared it with others. So it was a, another vehicle uh, to run this smear job against uh, Trump to get the spy operation going and to get the seditious coup conspiracy against him going. So these documents reveal, as the headline says, an extensive relationship between Steele and top Obama State Department officials. And it shows prior to the dossier that Steele sent at least, by my count, over 24 reports on Russia to, Chris, to, to this guy Jonathan Weiner, uh, Victoria Nuland, who was the top state official on Russia under uh, Kerry, and other officials at the State Department, some of which it turned out had to be declassified in order to give them to us. And we only got them partially because there were material in there that was still redacted. 24 plus reports. You can see why Steele was well positioned when he came knocking in 2016 with his dirty dossier. Again, this is work that Judicial Watch is uncovering, not Congress, not the Justice Department, not the FBI, and the State Department only Fess this up after we sued. When did we sue? This is sued in April 2018. And it's now October. 
I don't know when we got the documents. Let's say we got the documents within the last month. I think it was the ninth production. So what happens is they give us these productions once every month or so. So it's the drip drip, the slow drip, the modified limited hangout of damaging information showing State Department involvement in the coup cabal targeting President Trump, the seditious criminal conspiracy, as I like to call it, targeting President Trump, all covered thanks to Judicial Watch. You know, Judicial Watch's previous document finds in this case have been extraordinary. They were talking about Russia and the Steele dossier. Uh, we confirmed with Bruce Orr. With Bruce Orr. Who's Bruce Orr? You may remember the Justice Department top official whose wife, Nellie Orr, also worked for Fusion GPS. And these discussions are going on after the election. They were targeting Trump after the election, trying to get some campaign finance garbage charge against them going, based on a left-wing Mother Jones magazine story. Judicial Watch found that. Joe Orr says in response, I hope we can get something going here. Boy, it doesn't sound like a, uh, a quiet, retiring DOJ official who's just doing his job. That's an activist, an anti-Trump activist. Orr's involved in another scandal. Go on to our next lawsuit. So we found in these emails between Nellie Orr and Bruce Orr in other litigation that Nellie was deleting emails about Russia, it looks like. So we sued to get the background, figure out what was deleted. Nellie Orr sent an email to her husband, Bruce Orr, in April 2016, advising Orr, I am deleting these emails now. Seemingly related to, quote, an analytical exchange involving the German embassy and Russia issues. Impact of Russia influence operations in Europe, PSYOPs info war. We don't know exactly what the emails were. That's why we sued. How is it that Judicial Watch is uncovering that Nellie Orr is deleting Russia emails? Wasn't she doing it at her husband's direction? Why was she involved in an interaction with the, State with the Justice Department and the German Embassy on Russia issues while she's working for the Clinton campaign? I mean, this, is, this, is, this, is, this shows you the insanity of the way this town is working. We've, we asked for the emails, didn't get them, we sued, we found that she's deleting something, potentially improperly, potentially an obstruction of justice, no one is doing anything about it. We have to go and ask for that material again, we don't get the information, and we have to sue again. And we're not suing the Obama Justice Department. We're fighting this Justice Department. 
virtually everything important we know about what Bruce Orr was up to in terms of documents you can point to saying this is what he was doing, this is what he was doing, this is what he was doing, is as a result of Judicial Watch's litigation. Some of what we know is because of the intrepid work of some individual members of Congress, like Nunes, Jordan, Meadows, Gates, people like that, Grassley, Gowdy to a certain extent when he was there. But the actual underlying documents, Judicial Watch is getting them. We got the 302 reports, the FBI reports, detailing Orr's collusion with Fusion GPS to launder information improperly into the FBI and Justice Department. Her, her, his collusion with Nellie Orr, Christopher Steele, his wife Nellie Orr, giving them documents with Nellie Orr's Fusion GPS uh, material uh, denoted, uh, the uh, material denoting it's from Fusion GPS deleted to cover it up. All that's because of Judicial Watch. Judicial Watch found that Christopher Steele was paid by the FBI 11 times during the campaign while he was working for Hillary and the D DNC. Did you know the spy targeting Trump during the campaign for Hillary Clinton and the DNC was also getting cash from the FBI? It was a joint operation. And I could go on and on about the disclosures that we uncovered, the FISA warrant applications we uncovered, the fact the courts had no hearings on the FISA fraudulent warrants, the details on Comey's criminal activity as it relates to President Trump's um, memos he wrote about discussions, and the coups continuing. So we're doing all this work. No help from justice and FBI. We just have to litigate it. And the Democrats think they're free and clear from their, for their criminal activities involving and targeting Trump. They're holding these fraudulent impeachment hearings. They're not even really impeachment hearings. I won't get into the, the Alice in Wonderland um, abuse there this week. And now breaking today is there, the, the, you've got the deep state attack on President Trump illegally leaking information about his communications allegedly with the Ukrainians. How dare President Trump suggest that the Ukrainians in investigate Joe Biden's son for criminal activity in Ukraine? How dare he say, let's investigate the corruption of the last administration? What's going on with the cover-up? How dare he? Meanwhile, the prior administration was involved in an international conspiracy using the United Kingdom, Italy, Germany maybe, Australia, to target, on him, to target him and spy on him. The deep state is trying to overthrow this president, and if they can't do that, they want to handcuff him. So that if he speaks to a foreign leader, Anything he says will, can and will be used against him, however unfairly. They're trying to hijack our nation's foreign policy, folks. The Judicial Watch is the only one trying to figure out what's going on in terms of the criminality 
Oh, I know. U.S. Attorney Durham's doing it, right? I don't know. If he's doing a criminal investigation, it's one of the best kept secrets in Washington. Because you can bet if the bad guys had to go before a grand jury, you'd know about it. I mean, the big noise is McCabe may be indicted for lying about something unrelated. Well, that was referred to the Justice Department in April last year. Still no indictment. Comey was referred for criminal prosecution. Indictment rejected. And I tell you, nothing's going to happen unless we get these documents out. That's why we sued for... Uh, what else did we sue for? We sued for... Um, <sighs> The, one of the worst aspects of, of the deep state obstruction is uh, the FBI. The FBI has not changed its stripes one iota in terms of cooperation, in terms of respect for the rule of law under the Freedom of Information Act and transparency. As far as I'm concerned, James Comey may as well be running the FBI. They're covering up text messages. They don't want to return over text messages. They're protecting Andrew McCabe. They're protecting virtually everyone involved in this scandal by either refusing to turn over documents outright, slow walking the release of others. I've told you about Page Struck documents. Remember Lisa Page, Peter Struck? They don't want to turn over all those records. They, want their, they have, a, what, 18,000 records or so? The numbers change depending on which day we ask them. And they only can produce them at a rate of 500 pages a month, which would put it out till 2021 till we get them all. And no, we wouldn't get them all in 2021 because they were, they're withholding material. So that's when the fight would begin about the material they withheld. So they're trying not only to stall this into the next administration, but effectively into the administration after the next administration. And again, we're doing the basic heavy lifting that no one else is doing. We sued for the records of the FBI agent who first circulated the, the dossier, supposedly. You probably haven't heard of him. Michael Gaeta, who was the legal attaché for the FBI in Rome, and we sued for records about his communications. And I love, I love the terms we used in asking for a search of the documents, mentioning the terms Trump, Clinton, Republican, Democrat, and or conservatives. And other documents, including expense reports and other reporting by Gaeta to see what he was up to. Bruce Orr justified... that Christopher Steele met with him in Rome, Gaeta, in July of 2016 and gave him two reports. Gaeta reportedly was authorized by then Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland, State Department again, to meet with Steele at his office in London to receive reports from the dossier. The purpose of the London visit was clear. Steele was personally handling the first memo in his dossier, handing the first memo in his dossier to Gaeta for ultimate transmission back to the FBI and the State Department. 
For this visit, the FBI sought permission from the Office of Newland, the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Newland, who had been the recipient of many of Steele's reports already, as I told you, you didn't know that until I told you. No one knew that until we told you just now. Gave permission for the more formal meeting. On July 5th, 2016, Gaeta traveled to London from Rome and met with Steele at the offices of Steele's firm. You know, and typically when we ask for documents like this, they say, oh, it's covered by this exemption. You can't get it. You can get this document, but you can't get that document. Uh, or uh, we've got a lot of requests. You're going to have to wait in line. Here, they gave us a Glomar response. They refused to confirm or deny whether the records existed, which is extraordinary. They refuse to confirm or deny whether he has travel vouchers. I mean, this is an FBI that is out of control. And when I say a Glomar response, it's a, I think it's a 70s term. It, it was the CIA was being asked about a ship. I think it was called the USNS, I think it was the US Glomar. And the Glomar allegedly was a salvage ship that had been set up by the CIA through a front company to try to retrieve a sunken Russia sub, and a reporter got wind of it and asked for documents about it. And the CIA didn't want to confirm or deny it. To deny it would provide information, and to confirm it would provide information to the bad guys. That was their thinking. And the court upheld that, more or less. And so that case famously became known as the Glomar case. And so when we get a Glomar response, it's, the, it's, it's a shorthand version of saying, and FOIA nerd world, I'm a FOIA nerd, uh, that uh, it was a, they can't confirm or deny the documents take, uh, exist. So here we have a top Justice Department official testifying about the meeting, okay? And he can't testify without permission of the Justice Department. And they are telling us documents about the meeting they can't confirm or deny to, uh, exist. The FBI has contempt for oversight and the rule of law. And it hasn't changed with Director Ray one iota. And so Judicial Watch once again is in court against the FBI trying to get this information. I mean, just the other day, uh, I told you last week, we had, um, I told you about the FBI's contacts with Steele, and they fired him. They were paying him, and then they fired him. And then they wanted to use him again by using Bruce Orr to, as a cutout. But the, the documents about, from the FBI about Steele stopped about the time Mueller was hired. And the FBI was taking a position, we can't get anything after the fact. And the court said, oh, yes, they can. And he gave them 60 days to search for records. And you know what the FBI had tried to pawn off on the court as an argument? They're trying to protect Steele's privacy. I'm telling you, it's like James Comey's running the FBI. Actually, you know, Comey was a bit more transparent than this, believe it or not. Unbelievable. I mean, along those lines, we have a lawsuit against both the Justice Department and the FBI for a key document, another lawsuit. I've, uh, Judicial Watch is 
on fire, folks. We filed six or seven lawsuits in the last 10 days on these issues. There's this big document, kind of one of the holy grail documents that have yet to be declassified and are wrongly being withheld as classified on the deep state spy against President Trump, the Obama gang spying on President Trump. It's called the Electronic Communication, and it's the one document that initiated the counterintelligence investigation of President Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. And the way I interpret the discussion of this, it's hard to know because we don't know what the document is, is that there was electronic communication from one of our allies suggesting something was going on and they needed to investigate it. Hence the alleged opening of the counterintelligence investigation. Now, Nunez, as uh, Devin Nunez had looked at this document, and this is what he said about it. So it took us a long time to actually get this because they wouldn't even share it with Congress, the deep state Justice Department and FBI. So it took us a long time to actually get this, and they still haven't gotten it fully unredacted. What were the original reasons for the counterintelligence investigation was started? Now, this is really important to us because the counterintelligence investigation uses tools of our intelligence services that are not supposed to be used as an American citizens. So we wanted to know what intelligence actually led to this investigation. So what we found now, after the investigators have reviewed it, this is the document we want, is that there was no intelligence. So this document's a fraud. It was used to justify, without foundation, spying on President Trump. And this FBI and Justice Department are withholding it from us. The FBI and the DOJ are still covering up, still covering up the Obama administration's corrupt spying on then-candidate Trump. And this document may be key to exposing Spygate. And it's being withheld. And this is why I encourage the President of the United States to directly involve himself in getting these documents declassified. Because Nunes has looked at this, and it, there's nothing in there that warrants classification. In politicized circumstances like this, and of course I don't want classified information, but if I thought it would truly needed to be classified, we wouldn't be fighting about it. We're not looking for times and locations of potential military operations in Afghanistan. We're asking about a political document created to target a presidential candidate in an unprecedented fashion. What was behind it? CIG looking at this? I don't know. I could tell you that you don't need an IG when you've got Judicial Watch. Don't you think? So a lot going on here at Judicial Watch. Next week, uh, we've got more documents coming out. Uh, Hillary Clinton will be making her big filing, uh, presumably opposing our efforts to depose her. So I'll talk about that and more lawsuits upcoming. So as always, with Judicial Watch, more is coming. Thanks for joining us tonight, and I'll see you next time here on Judicial Watch's weekly update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. 
Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.